Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in 51 different countries, and I'm so pleased and so inspired to know that there are people around this globe who are looking for the message of hope and also the message that there is light after the darkness. There are so many people from so many different walks of life, whether it's uh, physical, financial, or any other kind of traumas that they have gone through that need to have that beacon of light, that thread of hope as their survival. And so we can address that from so many different aspects in this show. And I thank my guests and my listeners because they are what is making this show a success. Today with me is Dr. Robin McGee. She is a registered clinical psychologist. She has taught at the university level, and I am so impressed with this. She has published in professional journals in the field of child psychology. Whether she has time to share any of those with us today or not, I don't know. But regardless, I'm sure that it would be something that we could discuss at another time. Robin McGee was a fit, active woman in her 40s when she developed frightening symptoms in her own body. So four doctors ignored her complaints and, in fact, even belittled them. She waited two long years for a diagnosis, and by then she had stage 3 rectal cancer. Her book, The Cancer Olympics, which is an intriguing name and a is Robin's account of a gutsy, no-holds-barred, middle-aged woman's fight against three formidable enemies, which were late-stage rectal cancer, the medical establishment, which she is actually part of, and archaic government policies. Robin, welcome. Thank you for having me, Carol. It's a real honor. Today, let's start with your life before cancer. So tell us about your career before you got sick. Well, uh, I, um, I, I had worked uh, for about 11 years in, you know, as a child psychologist in an outpatient mental health clinic. So, and I'm like an ordinary person. I'm a person who, um, you know, I, I went to work, I came home, I cooked dinner, I, you know, looked after my child, I went to watch television, went to bed, you know, so I, I lived, a, I'm a very ordinary person, an ordinary 
I'm a Canadian, so very just an ordinary person. And uh, that uh, then I, uh, you know, I'm... Are all Canadians ordinary? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Canadians are more known for ordinariness. Okay. (laughs) I just wanted to clarify that. Right. Okay, so go that, ahead. You're an ordinary a very person. Ordinary life that many, many of us live. Just an ordinary life, you know, with your family and your work. And I played soccer on a women's soccer team for 15 years, just a recreational mm-hmm. league. And I, uh, you know, I um, looked after my health a lot. I worked out just about every day because uh, I had to train to play soccer. So I did that. And I, uh, I had a I have a little tiny private practice where I saw saw patients for uh, psychotherapy and uh, so on and and so you know just as again just a, an ordinary everyday existence but you know tried my best to be careful about health and mental health and all kinds of things and so I had uh, I one uh, one son at the time all he was thirteen when I first approached um, doctors with my issues uh, but he's uh, twenty one today. Uh, so, uh, just, uh, I'm just, uh, a regular person. So that hasn't been that long ago since you got your diagnosis then. I'll be, I'll be at the magic five-year mark in April. So tell us now what happened when you started getting these symptoms and, um, you went to the doctor and tell us that story. Well, it's kind of a horror story, really. Uh, I went to see a doctor for rectal bleeding, that uh, sudden onset uh, rectal bleeding, and it was in June of 2008. So I'll call that person doctor number one. My regular doctor was away, and doctor one, uh, she was a locum, and she documented that I had blood mixed with stool, and uh, and he, she told me the symptom was a result of an antibiotic that I had taken about a month before, and I bought that explanation, and she didn't book a return appointment. Um, that was that. So the symptom went away for about six weeks, and then and then it returned. And so I went to see my regular uh, doctor, who I will call Doctor Two. Now, Doctor Two had been my family doctor at that point for sixteen years, and a, and a colleague as well, someone I knew and had worked with on various cases uh, together. So Dr. Two recorded in her medical record that I had a positive family history of colorectal cancer. My mother had had it. Really? And then also uh, that I was not, by then I wasn't just bleeding. I was also sort of shedding sheets of, of, of bloody tissue, The uh, what I was shedding, sort of the inner lining of the... Um, uh, the mucosa, the the uh, rectal mm-hmm, tissue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Doctor Two did an exam, and she she couldn't find any hemorrhoids or fissures or any other reason for the bleeding, but she told me I was probably having an uh, antibiotic reaction, and she was leaving her her family practice in a few weeks. So, she wrote a, a letter to a general surgeon, Doctor Four, who I'll call Doctor Four, and her referral letter left out all of the concerning information she documented mm. which, and it said in essence in essence it said rectal bleeding please assess so she left out the history she left out the uh, the severity of the symptoms she left out um the pattern that it uh, of the bleeding she'd left out all kinds of details so that's what she'd sent including the family history including the family she did not include the family history she didn't uh, didn't include that in her referral letter and then when her pra- so her practice closed in a few weeks later, and her, uh, when I called uh, there to say, well, what does this mean? What's going to happen? The secretary said, well, you're just on your own. You're on your own with that. You're on your own with your symptoms. So then I took my symptoms to a new family doctor, doctor number three, 
And even though I'd been bleeding for seven months by then, he wrote his medical record that my symptoms had lasted days. So he told me that I was having, quote, the bowel equivalent of a nosebleed, end quote. And uh, although he agreed I should have some uh, kind of a scope to find out what should happen, he said, uh, well, I found out what was wrong. He said, "Uh, I promise I'll follow up with Dr. Four, the general surgeon to whom you've been referred. I'll follow up with that. So I left his office feeling relieved. Oh, yes, I found someone who will take action on my behalf. But that was a case of uh, more fool me because Dr. Three took no action at all. He And he he forgot. He forgot to. Oh. And uh, so uh, he had put a, a note in his um, medical record. Oh, I, I should follow up on this. And he for some, somehow it got signed off as completed when it was never completed. So he never did what he assured me he would do, which was follow up with Dr. Four to find out why is this taking so long. So I, he had warned me that the scope would take a long time, and so I waited. And, and remembering, too, that Dr. Three was also a colleague. He was someone I knew and had worked with for many years in cases in common. So Dr. Two and Three, they'd been my colleagues as well as my doctors. So in where I live, I live in a small rural area so professional circles are very small so I thought that those doctors saw me as a person a person with a face and a name and a family and I never dreamed that either of them would would not come through or would not um I assumed they'd help me because I I would certainly have done that for them but Anyway, the idea that I, the collegial relationship would help me in any way, mm-hmm, that was an mm-hmm. idea in my mind. It was never in their mind. So, I think I that would be in everyone's mind. You just would expect that little extra and extremely surprised when there wasn't even the least effort. Not even the least effort. That's, that's what occurred with, with both doctors. So um, now I didn't know it, but Dr. Four, the general surgeon to whom I'd been referred, she had long ago abdicated all her surgical triage decision-making to her receptionist, <laughs> someone with Sorry. no medical training. Oh. I know, it's preposterous. It, it is, oh. but that's how it was. This was all uh, revealed by uh, an investigation. That, how small of a town did you live in? Um, I think there's a, you know, our uh, locale is really a, seri- a smattering of small towns. Okay. So all in, we're probably around 20,000 people. So it's not big. But still, so, okay, go a, ahead. So uh, anyway, for over 20 years, this receptionist had been doing all of Dr. Force triage. So all her scopes, all the breast lumps, all elective surgeries, all uh, were managed by this receptionist. So when Dr. Two's letter arrived, her inadequate letter arrived, it went to the very bottom of that secretary's oh. So I waited patiently, and of course my symptoms escalated. So I called Dr. Three and Dr. Four's office to tell them this and to inquire after an appointment with Dr. Four what's going on with Dr. Four. But both, both secretaries in both offices uh, blew me off. So Dr. Three's secretary told me to call Dr. Four, and Dr. Ford's secretary laughed at me. Dr. Ford's receptionist told me that the wait for a scope in the province, my province of Nova Scotia, was 18 months. Oh. And she confirmed that if I left her queue, I would have to wait 18 months in someone else's queue. So she wouldn't even give me an appointment. But neither of those secretaries communicated my call to their respective doctors, where I'm calling 
in saying, I'm in trouble, I'm getting worse. So, so I had no idea that they were not going to pass this on to the respective doctors. So now, by now, it's 15 months. I've waited 15 months, and I'm in real trouble. Uh, and although I didn't know what it was, I was having signs of uh, obstruction. The tumor was actually so large. By then, I was having a hard time getting excretion past it. So I called Dr. Forrest's office, and I insisted, I insisted, you, I'm in real trouble now. You really have to give me a, con- a consultation but they made me wait another six weeks. Oh. Uh, and then after the consultation appointment I have with Dr. Four, I gave Dr. Four all my history. Now, dark red blood is one of the many alarm symptoms for mm-hmm. cold cancer. So Dr. Four did an exam and said, she wrote in her report, it was normal apart from the dark red blood on her examining globe. So despite my positive family history of colorectal cancer, despite my many months of symptoms, she dismissed me as having a proctitis or a mere inflammation. And I pressured her into agreeing to scope me, uh, but she said, yeah, okay, I'll do that, but you have to wait another three months. So um, and in addition to that, one of the things that was really um, distressing is that uh, she, I had blood work there. And she said, oh, your blood work's fine. There's nothing to worry about. But that blood work was from over 13 months previous. Mm. So she had she misread it as it was January. So she misread it as being that January when it was the previous January. So, uh, so she based her diagnostic impression on blood work that was 13 months out of date. Let's just back up for a minute and tell me what you personally are going through at that time. Besides the symptoms, but I mean emotionally, your frustrations, etc. Were you considering any options? Well, you know, uh, I uh, the symptoms, while troubling, were not painful. So um, I'm a, a, a citizen who believes that emergency rooms are for emergencies, and so mm-hmm. this my symptom was troubling, and and I knew that there was a systemic reason for it. But it didn't occur to me to go to the emergency room because I knew that what I needed was a colonoscopy and a colonoscopy takes a full day's bowel preparation. And it seemed to me that that was something that an ER would not undertake. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would be redirected back to my family doctor, which would be the correct thing. So I I simply thought, okay, uh, these people told me I'd. It was, this was an antibiotic reaction. I'd had other friends who'd had antibiotic re- reactions. So I thought, this is taking a long, long time for an antibiotic reaction. Mm-hmm. It seems to just get worse and worse. What's with that? Uh, so when Dr. Four said, oh, you just have uh, proctitis, I thought, okay, well, I'll look up the inflammatory uh, bowel diseases, and I like Crohn's and colitis. And when I, when I uh, study those, I see that many people have flare-ups of those conditions. And so I thought, maybe I'm having one big flare-up that just keeps flaring and flaring and flaring and never, uh, never ends. So I had, uh, I had not – cancer was not a word that had occurred to me. Really? I mean, I was only in my 40s at the time, and my mother had been in her late – well, she'd been almost 70 at the time of her diagnosis. So – I uh, I had kind of like many people had thought, well, that's a disease of older mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. and that and that the the explanations, the benign explanations I'd had up to that point seemed to me to be um, plausible, and also you know again as I can only say that these people were my colleagues, and I never dreamed that they would they would just ah cancer schmancer. I didn't. I never dreamed that they would. Mm. Um, 
disregard. Uh, they treated they treated they treated me with such such uh, benign um, disinterest mm-hmm. that I thought, well, if my close colleagues are thinking this is nothing, four doctors have told me this is nothing. What's wrong with me? Why? why does, okay, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what's uh, so that's kind of what's going on. I'm thinking at the time. I'm thinking, you know, this this is starting to get worse and worse, and starting to hurt, and it's starting to be. Uh, distressing and it's starting to interfere with my functioning because of course after seeing Dr. Four probably just prior and after of course the symptoms escalated and escalated and escalated escalated and I was in real then became I, I really was in real pain so when I went for my scope it was 22 months oh. after I had first presented to family doctors with, with, with symptoms that I now understand are considered semi-urgent symptoms oh. so that was 18 months after referral 22 months after going to doctors uh, at, uh, now, the best practice standards um, for uh, investigation of rectal bleeding, all rectal bleeding, all rectal bleeding of anyone of any age should be investigated within eight weeks. That's the practice standard. It's a practice guideline recommendation by your American associations, our Canadian ones, say that symptoms like that should be investigated within eight weeks or around 60 days. Mm. I didn't wait 60 days. I waited 661 days oh my goodness. for that scope. And at that time, the scope, by the time it had a stage 3C cancer, the, the, as far as you can go, uh, then the, um, uh, there was some question about whether it had metastasized. But the tumor had the approximate mass of a grapefruit. That's oh. what it was. Okay, let's talk about reactions. First of all, your reaction and also the various doctors. Well, you know, after I had, after my diagnosis, I was shocked out of my mind. And then I'm thinking, I was sickened and stunned because, of course, I learned quite rapidly that it was not conventional in my province for people to wait 18 months for an endoscopy. That was not the norm anywhere in Nova Scotia, or even in Canada. So Dr. Four had a practice like that, but no one else did. So after my diagnosis, I met 20-year-olds scoped within weeks of their symptom set by other doctors in my region. So this whole thing I'd been told, I had been outright lied to, uh, misled about how, how, uh, what the resources were. There were resources, but Dr. Four just didn't, didn't respond to, uh, um, didn't respond to the people in need like uh, like me. Why? Oh, so, uh, well, that came that became apparent after an investigation. Okay, so okay. I'll, I'll be clear about that in a minute. But okay. I was also horrified because I learned ultimately from my cancer doctors that the symptoms I had first presented to uh, to doctors one, two, and three. Uh, were those of uh, an adenoma, which is a precancerous state. So if any of those three had done their jobs, I might have avoided cancer altogether. But instead, I went on to lose all those years of my life and uh, to cost the taxpayer the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, yes. And hundreds of thousands in income and other things that, that, that all the other suffering that goes with with the really brutal treatments that I uh, underwent. So I, I can tell you that I felt so betrayed, so shocked that I had been in this perfect storm of medical mismanagement. By the that by the time I'm at this point, I learned that my my cancer uh, at its stage has a in around a 33 survival chance. 
uh, and that I was going to need to undergo two years of really brutal treatments, two chemotherapies, radiation, two surgeries. And I was going to have to do that in order not to leave my only child motherless. So, so that was uh, the horror story of that. Uh, so that's the story of, 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 of a horrendous medical error, horrendous, um, um, really, really, really behind the eight ball, having lost two years against a, a very serious malignancy. That should not have happened. Should not have happened. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, it did not need to have happened. So that's that's the like many people um, I've since gone on, and I'll talk about this more at length. Uh, to meet many people who've experienced um, serious medical error, and 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 what the advocacy efforts I do to kind of protect others from um, from having an outcome like mine. But I'll talk about that. Yes, definitely, we want to talk about that. But continue with your story. Well, the next piece then. Uh, while I was undergoing uh, chemotherapy and radiation combined, I was just reeling in shock, Carol. Like, just think, how could this have happened? How could this horrific medical practice even take place? How did this happen? So I, I uh, asked for all my radical records, and when I got it all together and put it all together, I could see for myself that this, this, uh, this. Um, um, <laughs> someone once said to me, "You know, this is like." A comedy of errors, except nothing about this is funny. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking that before you said it. It was like a chapter oh. like by the Keystone Cops of Medicine. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, so how could this have been? So what I did is even while I was undergoing radiation, chemotherapy, while I was on a, a liquid diet, uh, because I, the tumor was so large, I couldn't eat food anymore. Um, and, uh, I was going, uh, undergoing radical, uh, menopause brought on by ovarian destruction from the radiation, which has its own horrendous toll mm-hmm. on the, um, so I submitted a complaint to, uh, what is our licensing board here. That would be the equivalent of a licensing medical board in, in, uh, in, in the United States. So this is our College of Physicians and Surgeons is what it's called. So I um, sent in my records and asked them to investigate. Uh, and many terrible things were revealed by that investigation. There were profound failures of basic medical office practice um, across the four doctors were revealed in that investigation. So the book, uh, my book uh, reveals the outcome of that investigation. Um, I can, without totally giving it away, I can say that three of the four doctors were ultimately disciplined uh, by the college um, but uh, uh, why and how, it's, <laughs> it's all in the book. But uh, in essence, uh, that uh, serious flaws were, were discovered in how each of them conducted uh, practice medicine in terms of basic communication, workflow in their offices, their receptionists uh, um, running the place instead of them. Um, all those kinds of things um, came, were, were ultimately revealed. Were you satisfied with the discipline they received? I would say no to that. Um, uh, um, I'll say no and yes. One is that uh, if you know anything about complaining to colleges, medical colleges, the doctors are very much like policemen. They basically back each other up and it's very, very Mm -hmm. uncommon for doctors to discipline each other at all. And so, you know, even um, we've had a recent news um, cast our famous uh, news uh, media show the fifth estate just did a investigation into sexual predation on patients by doctors and even those doctors don't get their licenses wow. revoked 
and they're often given second chances to practice and third and fourth chances. And so, you know, really doctors have to be almost outright criminal. Uh, and even sometimes outright criminals don't get their license uh, revoked. So I knew that these doctors would be disciplined, but that the discipline they would get mm. would not kicked out of medicine forever. And, and, and even in, in truth, I didn't want that outcome for them. I wanted, I wanted this, I wanted this not to happen to anyone else. Did you ever but get I, an apology? Oh, of course not. Wow. The fourth doctor, Dr. Four, in my opinion, I think the college should have gone further with her. I think there should have been a practice audit where they investigated what was the outcome of the other people waiting 18 months for endoscopy um, uh, who had symptoms like mine. That's, I feel that they should have gone further with her, but I, I was reasonably content with the discipline they gave the other, mm. the other three. So, uh, you know, knowing that they couldn't be... Um, uh, uh, consequenced more than they were, and that uh, and that uh, in my belief, when I re- reflect on them, my opinion that this, the first three doctors are human beings of conscience, and that having this horrible thing happen to them, they will shape up their practice. They would. Well, good. But it's Doctor Four. I, in my view, she was more of a rogue, and um, it, it's my view that she um, probably didn't correct her practice after even after these events so and i i felt that the 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 college should have taken a stronger role in monitoring her to ensure that she did but um but uh, i don't get everything (laughs) of course certainly don't get what i want so uh anyway so that's what occurred with uh with those uh with the doctors so the battle what yeah. kind of battle were you up against? Well, as I say, my my su- survival chances weren't great. Uh, at one point, estimated to be as low as four percent. Wow! Uh, and uh, so um, I had two images, two diagnostic images, separate images showing a, a, mis- a, a metastasis to an inoperable location. So I had to live psychologically with the idea that um, that I had the, that it had gone so far that it couldn't be. It couldn't be retrieved, and um, and that was really really hard. I mean, I'm in, in from a psychological point of view, mm-hmm. that was definitely the lowest point uh, is getting that kind of or having that kind of information. But um, so uh, what I had to undergo was, as I say, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, um, more chemotherapy. But what I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about too, and I'm talking about this, and because I know this show is about hope and giving hope and getting hope and. Um, so part of what I want to talk about is how I was sustained by uh, my own community uh, through all that. So, Because within di- days of my diagnosis becoming public knowledge, I was just overwhelmed with phone calls. So many people offered mm. me, but I was so stunned I didn't even know what to say to them. You know, I, I, I uh, didn't know how to ask for what I needed. I was so, mm. so overwhelmed with all the needs I had. So I, I knew that I needed an easier way to communicate with them, with my supporters. So one of my colleagues had had a brother uh, in his 30s die of stomach cancer under similarly neglectful circumstances. And she told me about a free service, a free service website called Lotsa Helping Hands. So lots of helping hands. Someone can type that in at Google and you will be able to create a, a free website, free community uh, website that will allow people to um, help you and to, do, it's <laughs> what I say about it 
it's like a bridal registry of chores. So now, is that is that um, U.S. and Canada? Yes, U.S. and Canada. So okay. anyone can access this, and so it's actually an American um, um, inventor, and it's maintained. Um, uh, it's free. It's a free service, so okay. people can access it, uh, uh, and it's wonderful. So I, I got a private, secure website, and what I loved about it was the security. So only those to, to whom I invited could attend, could be on this website. Mm. And I called this, I called it Robin's Cancer Olympics um, because of a card I received in the mail from a friend who said, oh, Robin, you're going to join the, you're going to be in the, the radiation event and the chemotherapy event. And then, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're going to get a gold in these various events. Mm. So... Um, so this, uh, anyway, the website has a message board to allow for good wishes. It allows places for people to put up documents and photos. But it had two features that made it really essential to me. It allowed me to simultaneously communicate uh, announcements using ordinary email. So people didn't have to go on to mm-hmm. a website, log in, have a password, all that. My my updates, when I posted updates, say, after an oncology visit, they came to my supporters by ordinary me- email. And my supporters could respond by ordinary email. And the responses came to me alone, not to the whole community. So so it's not like Facebook where everybody okay. can mm-hmm. see the messages right. of others unless they're using a special message board where they want people to see the messages of others. But the, uh, the Lots of Helping Hands has another helpful feature. It has a calendar on it. So as I say, it's a, like a registry of chores. So I could list the things I needed help with and when. Oh, and my volunteers goodness. could sign up. For what that. what kind of things, Robin? Well, I had a I had a child at home. I had a, a, a boy at home. He was you know he was fifteen. By the, at the point of my diagnosis, he couldn't drive, and you know you're taking kids to their things. Said I couldn't. I had to spend three hours or four hour every day in these exhausting treatments. Mm. I couldn't. I could. I couldn't uh, um, help him. So I I needed people to drive. I couldn't. I was uh, warned I couldn't go outside. So I, this was summer. So I needed help with my yard work, and it was very many things. But to give you an idea of how a responsive lo- the lots of blog can be, I live uh, for my radiation. I had to drive it about an hour away uh, for it. So one night I posted on my on the Watts uh, website. I said, you know. I've come to realize how hard it is to run a house, raise a child, and go to Halifax for radiation every day. I need, I need someone, I need people to sign up to, to drive me. And that's a long commitment. I'm asking mm-hmm. people for, you know, essentially three hours of their day. But within one hour of that post, I had eight people oh sign up to drive me in and out of radiation appointments in Halifax. It's not a little commitment. That was the kind of help. And people can post any kind of help. You know, they need help with groceries. They need help with this. And, with, and this way, using that, uh, people who want to help the stricken, they want to help uh, the sufferer, but they don't know how. And some of us have certain talents. Some of us love to mow lawns. Some of us hate doing that. So you could sign up for what you like to do. And this way, the person doesn't end up with 15 lasagnas all in one day. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. it, it can all be uh, paced. So it's, uh, so it's really, really wonderful. So... Um, that was a very, very valuable uh, service. and um, But the main function of LOTSA was that it enabled me to um, write uh, announcements. So what I um, was able to do, um, the community grew to about 200 plus people. But, you know, I was home, Carol. I was alone. I was very, very 
far away from my workplace. I'm mm. disconnected with life. I just live. I remember you, you reading about in your book, Battered Hope, reading about what it was like to be in hospital all those months while expecting a baby and just life is going on outside their window. <laughs> and you're not part of it. It's very, very, very lonely. So uh, I used the announcement function of the blog, which we all came to call RCO or Robin's Cancer for Robin's Cancer Olympics. And mm. it my way of connecting with the outside world. So I would post on there about my desperate fear, my disabling symptoms, my forthcoming treatments, and uh, sometimes my amusing jokes uh, <laughs> there too. And the community responded. So they were sharing with me their own stories of health issues or loss. And we would be in supportive dialogue through that. And using this uh, Olympic analogy, people were like, oh, Robin, go for the gold. You're going to own the podium, all that stuff. And many, many times, my supporters said exactly the right thing in moments of despair or hardship. So I had practical support through the Lots of Helping Hands website. But more importantly, I had emotional support, mm. uh, which I really, really needed to uh, to endure. And that, I guess, uh, when asked, you've asked what helped me survive, yes, yes. I would say it was this uh, sort of love story. It was uh, the uh, not only the uh, devotion of my spouse, Andrew, who, um, you know, fulfilled those uh, vows of uh, uh, sickness and health. We'd been married 20 years at the time this happened. Um, and, uh, you know, but also my community. So, you know, researchers in the, uh, I'm a psychologist in my day job, and so I study a lot about uh, resilience. And uh, there's a lot of research to show that people who have a supportive, uh, loving community of friends have a better quality of, of life than people who just rely on family or just rely on spouses or children to help them through a tough time. Uh, like this. So, what an incredible connection to build hope, though. Too, it's you know the encouraging words from someone, whether they have been there before or not. Just to have that when you need it, oh, that's wonderful. We definitely, yes. we'll put that into um, into your show notes, and I certainly want to get the word out about that. I've never heard of it before. That's. And so it's local as well. So they are their local chapters per se. Is that what? Well, well, no. Lots of helping hands. I had people on my website from you know England were uh, could be uh, could be on it. You didn't. No, have but to I mean, as far as far as getting the help, it was. Oh yes, yes local people helped. I mean. yes, 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 definitely. Yes. And distant people who couldn't help in a practical sense certainly helped. In a in a um, support in an emotional way, yes. and that's one of the many reasons I wrote the book was because I wanted to illustrate what uh, what is the thing? What do you say to someone who's who mm-hmm. comes back from the oncologist and says I have a four percent chance of survival? How do we respond to that? I mean, even me, even today, I, I still think, geez, that's a how do I respond to information like that? So. What so what some of my things some of the things that friends said to me I've got uh, the actual the book is contains their actual emails they actually wrote nothing's mm-hmm. modified except corrections and spelling and things so uh, to convey that you know you can there is language there is a language that's supportive that's right that's going to be uh, that's really really going to help people even with the worst facing the worst news. Oh. That is an excellent tool to have because we're all put in that position. And sometimes we're put in that position 
by a total surprise and we don't yes. know how to respond. So that is excellent to have that. And that, so your book is, is memoir, of course, of what, what happened, but is it also like a little guide or a handbook as well? No, it's more, it's more of a, I would describe it as, um, cancer care meets the hunger games is <laughs> how I would describe it. It is a first person narrative. So okay. it's a, it's not, I held a picture of my tumor. It opens up with, I am holding a picture of my tumor. It's told in the first person, present tense, mm, and it unfolds mm. as it really, okay. how I experienced it in real life. Because I did not have the crystal ball. I didn't know I'd be talking to you five years later. I, of course. I, uh, I, I just uh, revealed, you know, this is the email I got today. This is what the doctor said today. This is, and mm-hmm. so forth. But another, there's another aspect of this story that I want to okay. share because, um, the other thing about uh, the Lots of Blog, something remarkable happened uh, with this uh, in my story. Something that takes it beyond just your ordinary cancer memoir. Not that ordinary cancer memoirs are never <laughs> ordinary. What a silly thing to say. But, but that there was a, a dramatic, remarkable David and Goliath thing that happened in addition. So after my surgery, I was absolutely shocked to learn that the best practice chemotherapy for my kind of cancer did not exist in Nova Scotia. It was available everywhere else in the Western world, in the United States and other provinces of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, but not here in Nova Scotia. So as you may know, uh, Canada's uh, healthcare is organized provincially, so each province has its own sort of rules. So my province had kind of never gotten around to acknowledging what every other province had adopted as the best Hmm. practice treatment for cancer. So that treatment would have conferred about a 20% improved survival chance for me. And my oncologist said, you know, if I could only, if I could give it to you once, even one cycle once, it would improve your chances. But I couldn't access it. And I had an only, I had a tiny window of opportunity to get that treatment. So what happened was, the RCO community, the people on Robin's Cancer Olympic blog, this these, they kicked into gear and they wrote letter after letter to our then health minister and also to the liberal uh, health critic and op- opposition, Diana Whalen. And the oncology community was also aroused uh, by this. And then uh, so everybody started lobbying cr- like crazy. You've got to allow this treatment. You've got to allow this treatment. You've got to allow this treatment. And, um, but the government refused. Uh, my appeal for the drug. Really? So what happened next then was a back and forth in the halls of the government and in the Nova Scotia legislature. So various uh, politicians um, got involved and then there was this um, uh, uh, involvement at the at that level. And so the whole community was both witnessed and challenged the government uh, response. So, you know, the, the book in this, because I wrote it as it really happened. The real emails I got from the government saying, you're not going to get this chemotherapy, so sorry. And then people going, this is not acceptable. Mm. What is our next step? And, uh, you know, uh, so I kind of giving away the, the book a little bit by telling you that I did not receive the best practice treatment despite our lobbying. However, what occurred was that um, our lobbying resulted in an overturning of the previous policy and that the correct and best practice treatment was introduced in Nova Scotia. And since that day, 
Over mm. 400 Nova Scotians have received access to this life-saving therapy. And so the survival rate for my kind and stage of cancer has improved thereby from about 33% in 2010 to 70% in 2015. And when so, people ask you, why did you have to go through this? That alone is, an, I mean, I'm not diminishing what you went through at all, but that must make you feel just incredible. It, it really was incredible. And it was, I, I need to say that that... The day that I received, the, my oncologist told me when I went in there, he said, well, you know, you you did it. You succeeded. Yes. They, 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 they signed it into the formulary two days ago. I have patients starting on it. I have several patients starting on it today. Mm. Right now, people are starting on this drug that you made available for for them, although it's too late for you. I uh, I uh, I knew then that we had a story. We had a real story because <laughs> of the, uh, the um, grassroots advocacy that went into a community of, again, as I say, ordinary people, we're ordinary citizens. We all banded together, we all lobbied together, and brought about this 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 wonderful change in healthcare. And, uh, you know, I was told many times that had it not been for us, for our, for our um, lobbying and our efforts, it just wouldn't have happened. And we, people would still be deprived of that best chance at survival and cure. So that's uh, so that 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 when we say Olympics, you know, the idea of hurdle mm-hmm. after hurdle after hurdle, and that's the image you see on the front cover of the book is yes. someone facing infinite hurdles, going off into the distance. And uh, and how are you today? Well, I'm in remission still. Uh, so it uh, to technically one has to be in remission um, on the last day of one's last treatment, five years from the last day of the last treatment. For me, that will be in April, April the third. So I'll have that holy grail. I will uh-huh. uh, five, be alive for five years. <laughs> so now it, I I have to say that uh, it, it it took me two years uh, um, of uh, all these treatments and all of the suffering attached to attempting to recovery and so on. It took me two years, but now I'm back at work full time. I'm back at my small private practice, uh, and now. But since the events of the book. I've become very active in advocacy for patients generally and cancer patients in particular. Mm-hmm. So I've served on over six uh, expert working groups for um, a government uh, branch of cancer oversight, which is called Cancer Care in Nova Scotia. And our work is focused on improving standards of care, improving engagement of patients, improving patient education, and, and all of that. And in my greatest uh, investment, the most meaningful thing to me, has been um, involvement in a group, a working group, which focuses on proving guidelines for the detection and diagnosis of colorectal cancer for family physicians. So how can family physicians do this better? I was on a working group that just is just coming to a close now, uh, it took us years, to develop guidelines to say, family doctors, if someone comes in with this symptom, please don't blow mm, them off. No kidding. And... Um, is this so that, part is this part of the articles that were published in the uh, medical journals, or are those in the area of psychology? Yeah, no, my my publications are in psychology. Okay, um, so these the, these the guidelines are um, uh, under development and, and and will be published one day, and I'll be one of the authors on those guidelines uh, one day. <laughs> so um, my other thing that I, I've done, I'm a, I've been a fundraiser and a peer mentor with the Canadian Cancer Society. I've raised 
over $10,000 for them through, you know, Relay for Life and for um, those fundraising events. And the sales of my book, The Cancer Olympics. Yes, I saw has, that. Uh, I've raised over, well, gee, close to $5,000 now for the Canadian Cancer Society and also for the uh, Colorectal Cancer Association of Canada. And I am on a national executive for a, um, a group called the Canadian Patients for Patient Safety. Uh, and I've just... Uh, now the editor of the advocacy section for Cancer Knowledge Network, which is a key informational online resource here in North America. So, so and I, and my in terms of my peer match, uh, Carol. So this is when the Canadian Cancer Society and the American does uh, this too. That if someone has a new diagnosis, they can phone the society. The society will match them with a survivor who's undergone the same kinds of treatments, facing the same things that person faces, and that and I've had. I think I've had over 30 peer matches now where I phone people and help them. Uh, oh, my as, so I talk to them, talk it through with them to help them um, as they struggle, as I struggled. So um, so giving guidance about the kinds of things that only patients, uh, fellow patients can understand, things about family, spirituality, things your doctor's not going to talk to you about. An advocate but, is an understatement. Yeah, yeah. So it's really kind of my mission in life now because I'm really trying to earn my remission. As it so, uh, so every day I do something to improve the lives of uh, cancer patients as well as those who have experienced uh, the anguish of of medical error. So, last April, the Canadian Cancer Society awarded me their um, highest honor, which is their national. Medal of Courage. And when I got it, I wrote onto my website, the Robbins Cancer Olympic Community. We're still a community. We still correspond. I said, hey, look, I really did get the gold medal in the Cancer Olympics. <laughs> That's funny. That's true. <laughs> and the book, it just uh, the book is its own story of itself. So uh, as I say, I knew that I there was a, a, a profound story uh, in many at many, many levels in in. Uh, so I, uh, I've really wrote it. I published it uh, two years ago almost. It's earned four literary awards in uh, 2015, uh, including just recently the silver medal from the best inspirational book by Feathered Quill. Um, and it's had three, three other uh, lauds, including a recent mention in the Huffington Post. <laughs> All right. You've Woo-hoo! arrived. <laughs> made it to the Huffington Post. So uh, anyway, it was uh, named one of the best... Uh, 55 books, self-published books of 2015 across all genres uh, by um, Kirkus Reviews. So I, that was uh, really something. And so it sold over about uh, close to a thousand copies. Um, and, you know, so I get I get quite a lot of uh, response from readers about it. Readers tell me they stay up all night with it uh, shrieking. <laughs> Shrieking out loud, no, and, no, this can't be happening. And getting angry and crying and <laughs> laughing and all the emotions, yes, I'm sure. just like your book, <laughs> but for me. So, uh, you know, I, I, so from patients, I hear, oh, you know, this book really captured the anguish and the hope and the, mm. and the uh, can I hope, dare I hope, you know, those kinds of thoughts and feelings. Uh, and from caregivers, I hear, oh, you know, this really, really guided me on what to say or how to do the right thing in the face of cancer. And from healthcare professionals, I hear that it it shocks them and inspires them. Um, and what kind? Yes, what that's what I was going to ask you when you were talking earlier. What kind of response have you had from your peers? People in healthcare? Yes. Um, I've had. Um, 
I've had, uh, I'm sure there are many doctors who, in the face of a book like this, would like to stick their fingers in their ears and just hum. Yes, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> I think that is, that is probably how many people respond. But I have met doctors out there who've responded with such enthusiasm and warmth, and that has been one of the most rewarding aspects. So what I want to tell you about is uh, there's an internist in Montana named um, James Lagan. And he read the book and was so moved by it, he tweeted me while he was reading it saying, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe on page 60. I can't believe it. I, <laughs> and I, I, we tweet him back and we, we, we did this through the whole book and we called it tweet reading, which is reading a book <laughs> and tweeting to the author while you're reading the book. And the author, why did you use this metaphor on page 16? Well, I was thinking this. Anyway, um, so he and I did this and he was so um, thrilled by the story. He has himself an a, a fantastic approach to patient engagement. So what he has, this is a simple idea. Why no one has thought of it before, I don't know. But what he does is he basically connects his electronic medical record, the computer that's facing him, he's connected it to a TV screen in his office so that patients can see their own record while he's writing it. And so if he types in, you know, and so-and-so has type 1 diabetes, they can go, oh, oh no, 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 I had type, I had type 2 diabetes. Mm. And so with errors in the record can mm. be corrected right then and there. So people are safer. So he um, was presenting at a charts uh, a, a conference for other doctors about, you know, hundreds of other doctors. And he, he wrote in a blog saying, a guest blog saying, this is how this woman's story would have been different had the doctors involved used, uh, used this approach. If if this woman had been able to see her medical records, she would have seen that these people were that errors, terrible errors, were being made, and that misinformation was sent, and so forth. And he has things like a patient portal, so patients can um, inquire why is this taking so long, and then there is a response. It's not left up to secretaries and things like that. So there's great idea, yes, yes, much more responsive medicine. So you know, when he told me, I'd never even met him face to face, and he, but he said. You know, I took your book to the presentation and I handed it out to the doctors at the presentation. I said, you sign this book. You sign this to show this woman that you are not going to practice that way. You are going to re- listen to your patients. You're going to respond. You're going to keep them safe. Mm. And people did that. And he showed, he showed, he, he, I've since met him uh, kind of in, uh, through uh, Google type hangouts, blabs, where he's held it up and he's shown me these pictures. <laughs> so Anyway, uh, what I want to say is that was super meaningful to me to think that yes. this right, could be used to educate doctors, to be used in medical education in some way to, um, to make people sit up and say, oh, my God, these terrible, terrible, terrible things can happen. And, you know, we in medicine really have to think of care um, not unlike the airline industry. You don't when – the, when the, the airplane is coming down, the pilot calls the control tower and the control tower calls back and says, I heard you. So the, <laughs> the loop of communication is closed. We don't go, oh, I sent off a referral into the ether and no one ever got back mm-hmm. to me, but I'm sure everything's fine. You know, if you, Family doctors need to have office workflow uh, in place to help them pursue cancer uh, symptoms when they present in their offices. So that's... Uh, that's now, that, do you uh, do any kind of counseling as well or do you do it strictly um, uh, through lots of helping hands? Well, no, Lots of Helping Hands is my where I have a blog where people 
essentially counsel me. People okay, okay. Back and, uh, respond back and forth. Uh, I do have a practice, and in my own practice as a psychologist now because of the book, I do see uh, patients come, people who've been law, uh, bereaved okay. by cancer, people who've been harmed by cancer come to me, people who've been harmed by medical error come to me, people who've experienced post-traumatic stress disorder for whatever reason um, come to me uh, because uh, I think – in some ways, the book reveals me to be a person who who's really been at the lowest point of low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, people, I think, there's people out there who who want to know that they're they're not talking to someone who's never been down a dark dark road. So, so basically, so- what I'm asking, though, Robin, is this is this something that like listeners can tap into as well with you personally? Like, do you give uh, any kind of consultations? you know, through Skype or whatever, or is it strictly a one-on-one in your office? Uh, well, there's two variants of the one-on-one. One-on-one is through the peer mentorship through the Cancer Society. I, I get matched up by the Cancer Society. Okay. So that's a, that is a one-on-one. That's a phone call. Now, that's not psychotherapy. That is, that's me letting it all hang out and okay. the other person letting it all hang out. When in actual therapy, you, you're, you're following a protocol and mm-hmm. you know, doing something different. So, so, uh, um, uh, so yeah, no, as a psychologist, I practice with people face to face. Okay. So, okay. But um, regardless, there's still lots of tips and lots of help in your book, as well as connecting with this, uh, support group that you mentioned as well. Lots of helping hands. Yeah. People, yeah. So people on a, lots of helping hands, people are creating their own private support mm-hmm. group. So, I understand. Uh, you, yeah. So it's, um, People can, uh, uh, there's other ones out there, Caring Bridges and others, but I like Lots of Helping Hands because I found it to be uh, the most user-friendly because most people just want to use ordinary email. They don't want to have to mm-hmm. negotiate many, many web walls and things like that. So uh, the, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, and, and, and kind of getting back to the um, response to the book, uh, I've had a... a, a, a uh, these, this response from people who have found that it really, really spoke to them um, in their struggles with either with cancer or with a loved one's cancer, and and people of all walks of life too. You know, recently I I met a man who um, who he described himself as. Uh, He's six foot five, he's covered in tattoos, and he told me he was one tough mother. <laughs> a word I will not say okay. in a podcast. No, you can't. Oh, you can't say that word. So he said, he, and he said, look, I am one tough guy. I said, I have never cried in a book or a movie oh. in my entire life, he said, but I cried at yours. So, you know, that's my ambition. My highest ambition for the mm. book is to teach us all to appreciate life, health, and each other because – we're all each right. other. And, you know, there's there's a spiritual aspect in there, too. That's an excellent um, thing to close on. I appreciate those words. Also, tell us what's next. Well, I, I, my, um, my mission in life is this uh, patient advocacy. Uh, and I still, now I've gone back to being an ordinary person who goes to work, <laughs> dinner and watches TV. I do all that uh, as well. But um, I, uh, I, my real ambition in life is to carry on with this advocacy, to really, really work hard at trying to keep patients safer, to keep, um, to keep, to make physicians kind of wiser, to, to, uh, and to just, uh, I, I'd like to, I'd like to, I w- I'd like to think I'll write uh, again, I've got some ideas for fiction and stuff that I would like to put out there. But uh, I, uh, uh, 
I'm, I'm often involved in speaking. I do a lot of speaking about this book. So I've got uh, two speaking engagements in the next couple of weeks where I go out and uh, speak in person about, about the story and about the, um, uh, about the um, grassroots aspect of the, uh, of the political activism that we did. What kind so, of venues? All kinds. I've, okay. I've spoken uh, small, small and large. So I speak okay. to book clubs. I speak to a lot of book clubs, and okay. I've done that by okay. too. Um, and uh, I spoke. I speak also to um, large groups, uh, large uh, groups of say pharmacists, and I speak okay. to medical students. I've spoken to. Um, I'm speaking to the Rotary Club, and I'm speaking to a church group in uh, in the next little while. So uh, there's all kinds of uh, ways in which I try to get the story out there. Excellent. One other thing, I'll I'll just also say, just um, Carol, I also. Uh, have um, a, on YouTube a group called Colon Cancer Answers uh, is a is a YouTube uh, video channel for people who've been recently diagnosed and who have a lot of questions. So I have been extensively oh, okay. interviewed by them, and I have on um, there's videos of me talking about sexual health, uh, talking about. Um, um, going to the dentist, the importance of going to the dentist to, during treatment, all these various things okay. that people tend to think about when it comes to thinking about cancer treatment. So uh, so that's on Colon Cancer Answers. And so there's this, lots of little video snippets of me um, giving advice to um, other, uh, so giving answers to these kinds of issues. Okay, we'll um, put and that in the, your show notes as well. That's great. Yeah. And one other thing that we do is that we have a new thing that we, we've developed called the Blue Ribbon Kit, which is an information kit for people newly diagnosed. And I've also got a YouTube video attached with me on it and one of my counterparts um, uh, advocating that people could come and uh, have access to this online kit, which contains information about, uh, about colorectal cancer and its treatment. You are busy. <laughs> I'm busy. Doesn't it feel great? <laughs> well, it, you know, I never ever thought, Carol, that I would ever see 2016. So I, uh, let alone the kinds yes. of happened uh, here to have changed the, the, what happened in the province to have changed, to have written the book. I, I never dreamed that I would ever uh, get to this, get to where I get, I didn't dream that any of those things could happen because there was a time, you know, many of your listeners are going through tough, tough time right now where they're on the couch, they're all alone, they haven't seen their friends in months, they're not at work. You know, I guess I just want to say, you, they're, they're miracles happen and people yes. can, people can, um, people can get well and people can make a difference. Um, people can make a difference. That's, I guess, what I, the number one thing I want to say. It's funny because as you were talking initially about being an ordinary woman, an ordinary Canadian, I was thinking that's what the the line, the byline is for this show, ordinary people with extraordinary stories. <laughs> so you are no longer ordinary. I'm sorry. You are now extraordinary. <laughs> you've gone over that, that, you've bridged the gap. You've gone over that hurdle. You are an extraordinary person with an extraordinary story. And we so appreciate you sharing it. And there's many things to think about, many things that will be in your show notes that the listeners can connect with. And I'm anxious to read your book, as I know everybody is. We want, and we want to cry. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> cry with you because we it cry in ending. rejoicing. That's what I say. You cry in rejoicing as well. You know, you can get frustrated and, and you relate to people who have gone through similar things. But my goodness, when there's a happy ending, there's, there's nothing better than a good read like that. So I thank you for sharing all those things. And we look forward to um hearing from you again and hearing what's going to happen down the road so i'm sure that we will we will talk again and i thank you robin you've been great thank you very much carol appreciate it so much thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.